The Daily Rios Digest, Volume 2, Sunday, August 14th, 2022. That's not a conversation killer at all. Totally want to talk about the existential pain of living with the consciousness of death. Rios! Oh, thank God. Hey everybody, this is your host Peter with the 6th Digest of this second volume, covering Monday, August 8th through Friday, August 12th, 2022. Movie Monday. I wasn't initially going to put this particular movie topic on a podcast, but I decided, you know what, I'm having fun with it. Why shouldn't I talk about something that has been a blast to watch and to remember and something that you don't have to take so seriously? Why not celebrate the fun as things come crashing down around me, you know? So this movie Monday is all about the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. That's right, I said it. Wes Craven, Robert Englund as Freddy Krueger, Heather Langenkamp as Nancy Thompson, Johnny Depp, Dream Warriors, Dream Masters, and so much more. So I may have mentioned how I've been doing a bunch of franchise watches over the past two years. Uh, I think I talked about Mission Impossible in a previous digest. I watched all of the Alien stuff years back. I just watched the uh, Fantastic Beasts trilogy, which wasn't great. Um, Let's see, Terminator, Die Hard, the Bourne movies, the Ocean movies. I guess you could say me watching the Studio Ghibli stuff. Um, Yeah, I I, want to absorb all these franchises as they were released to get a sense of, you know, how they are, you know. So I'm not sure why I got a hankering to go into horror, but it's been decades since I saw the Nightmare movies, and, you know, horror has a ton of franchises of its own, so why not? I watched the first six movies so far, basically the main continuity, if you will. So it's the original, it's uh, Freddy's Revenge, Dream Warriors, The Dream Master, The Dream Child, and Freddy's Dead the final nightmare. Now, outside of maybe the last two installments, I was amazed at how much I remembered these movies, and I'm pretty certain I saw one through four in the movie theaters. Uh, Freddy's Dead, I have never seen before, and I just had a blast watching it all and (laughs) watched it during the day because I am that way. Um, But yeah, just fun, silly stuff, and Kind of excited to see the rest of them. So here's a few notes per movie. Nothing nothing in-depth, you know. I'm not going to go into directors and backstories. You know, I know that there's a documentary that I do want to watch all about these movies. Um, I'm not trying to be, uh, trying to have, I'm not giving you facts. I'm just giving you all my reactions here. So the first one is still really good, um, you know, for its time. There are some good scenes. I liked that they kept the character kind of in the shadows and you didn't know much about him. Uh, Tina's death is is pretty traumatic. Johnny Depp's death was still gory. Um, the whole crash through the mirror towards Nancy, that's still fantastic. Yeah, that was great. So one is, one is really good. Uh, part two is basically a horror movie, but also part 80s teen romp which I was surprised about, you know, as I was watching it again. 
Um, we have the character of Jesse and his family moving into Nancy's old house. I actually really liked his interactions with his friends. And, you know, he has a rival that you think is just going to be a typical 80s bully, but they work things out or they, that's just their, um, that's their interaction. That's just the way they communicate with each other. And it works. I, I really kind of dug it. We get a lot of origin stuff with Freddy, a trip to the factory, although that whole scene and that setting gets played loose with uh, later on. Uh, Jesse's relationship with his dad is awful. His dad is awful. Um, and then the ending, the whole attack at the pool, I think could have been bigger and grander. I was very surprised at the low kill count. Um, but I have to say, for a second part that in my mind I initially thought was kind of like the, the you know, black sheep of the franchise, but I didn't mind it this time. I, I actually quite enjoyed it, I have to say. Then we go to three dream warriors with the new character of Kristen, uh, played by Patricia Arquette. And uh, this movie, come on, was just perfect for me and my 16-year-old comic book reading friends at the time, right? With all the various powers and the characters, it just worked. Um, the movie New Mutants, is inspired by this movie. Uh, it made me remember, or it made me forget and then remember the whole Dokken music video, which I had to watch. Yeah, I had a lot of fun with this. It doesn't hold up, but there's, there are some silly death scenes and some, some silly um, special effects. And nothing really gets to the potential of what it could get to, like if this movie was made later, you know, but... Um, we get a lot more one-liners from Freddy, seeing Nancy and her father again, seeing the house. All of that was so emotional, the whole ending. Just just great. Like, I, I really enjoyed this one as well. It's probably the one I remembered the most out of all of them. A and, and one, I guess. Number four, we get a new actress playing Kristen. She is not good. She's not as good, and I just... The whole character kind of changes, and I guess a lot of it has to do with like some nepotism with the director. She was his girlfriend or something like that. I don't know, whatever. Um, Ford gets even deeper into the comedy, um, starting to go a little over the top as we get to number four. I am not a fan of the supporting friends. I, I Yeah, they just kind of didn't hit with me. Um, but I remembered a lot. I remembered a lot of the death sequences, sequences especially the Roach Motel one. Um, it's definitely more miss than hit, and I do like the new character of Alice. Um, I wish they would have developed the whole Dream Master thing, the whole poem that she uses at the end. I wish they would have developed it earlier. I mean, we keep seeing in all these movies the whole jump rope girls and the, and the, you know, the, the little rhyme that they have. So it would have been nice to have a twist on that. And then that's why she uses the poem at the end. But we didn't get that. With number five, The Dream Child, we get basically the ending of a trilogy. Three, four, and five. Um, Alice is back again. Um, I do not like that her supporting friends don't believe in her, especially the one actress, the one character. Um, the movies are starting to decline. The humor is getting more over the top. The death scenes are getting just more and more bizarre. Um, there's a comic book guy in this one, though, which I didn't remember. 
and there's a lot of shots of different various um, comic book covers on the screen, which was fun to look at. But, you know, there's a lot of cringiness stuff and the whole sun thing. Um, I don't know. It just kind of didn't work for me in this one. Although you do get a lot of um, more backstory with Freddy and his and his mother, Amanda Kruger, which we had seen in, uh, I guess, in, in the third one. Uh, so that was good. Like the whole backstory stuff I really like. Like that I kind of liked about all of these movies. Um, but five is, is just, you know, you're kind of like, mm, okay, and this is how they're going to wrap up this trilogy. The, the way they kill Freddy is okay. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. Uh, then we get to six and I did learn that, uh, you know, new line basically wanted to kill the franchise, you know, the, the, the franchise that gave them that basically put them on the map was kind of holding them back and they wanted to do other things. So they're like, all right, let's let's make it an event. Let's kill Freddy Krueger. Let's put it into a movie. And that's what they did. It's terribly shot. The productions are so bad. Um, the acting is terrible. You can see the money, money just dwindling away. Apparently, it's also 3D. We get more backstory to Freddy that he was inhabited by these like dream demons. Okay, again, I, I can dig that. But now the comedy is like totally like Looney Tunes. There's a terrible cameo with Roseanne and Tom Arnold. There was a surprising Johnny Depp cameo, which I didn't know. Um, yeah, it's not good. Uh, it revolves around Freddy's daughter, which again was interesting, but the death was kind of anticlimactic. And, you know, that's it. Like that's, you know, Freddy's dead. What else can you do? Um so a few other thoughts. Uh, I do like the way humor was used, but of course, as I mentioned, it gets a little too over the top. But store, Freddy's story is fun to watch it develop. You know, he's a child killer. Then you find the factory where he was burned by the parents, and he's going after all the Elm Street children. You get his origin in the prison. His bones were never buried, so that's how they kill him in, I guess, in the third one. They have to find his mother's bones. Um, we discover that he has a kid. He had a family while he was doing all of this. And when he finally does get rid of all the Elm Street children, he has to find a way to try to go after other children. So, like, in six, that's an interesting part of the story, but, again, it's not developed real well. Um, my whole thing especially when, once you find out that he has a kid, um, I would have put that to those little jump rope girls. Like, we kept seeing them in every uh, in every movie, right? And maybe they were his victims or whatever, but wouldn't it have been really interesting if one of them was his daughter? And that's why she kept showing herself to Nancy and Kristen and some of the other characters. Um, I was amazed at how fast these movies were released in the 80s. They really were cranking these out. They must have been popular. And for for as progressively worse as they get, I have to remember that even in the first movie, the first time you really see Freddy when he's chasing Tina and they're in the backyard, he kind of extends his arms to scrape along the, the um, fence. And it's not a great special effect. <laughs> And it makes me think of, you know, like a jack-in-the-box or something like that. So even that first appearance, that first major appearance, was kind of silly, if you think about it. 
So um, let's see the various ways they kill Freddy. I liked the third one when they're burying his bones and throw the uh, holy water on him. I do like the ending of Dream Master with the mirror and the poem where he sees his own evil. Like that works for me. That really worked. Turning your back on him in the first one. That makes sense. And then the second one is just basically, you know, the the character of Jesse is inhabited by Freddy and his girlfriend turns to him and says, I love you. And that's the way they defeat him there. Uh, the dream child is just separating the baby from in him. And then the sixth one is just, like I said, you just blow him up and the demons come out. If I had to rank them all, the original is still my favorite. I really like three. And then I would put two. Then I would put four, five, and then six. So two has a much higher ranking than I thought. Uh, I put the posters by Matthew Joseph Peake on Instagram, and that's where I initially talked about this franchise because those are great. They're really great. And now I can watch the next installment or the reboot or whatever this new continuity is. I think the only one that I remember seeing of anything that came after the sixth one is um, Freddy vs. Jason. I did see that one somewhere along the way. But I'm going to go into all new territory here with all of the post-Freddy's Dead movies, and I can't wait. So in terms of horror franchises, I, I'm fully aware of all of the great ones. You know, Halloween and The Exorcist, uh, you know, certainly Friday the 13th. Part of me wants to watch Final Destination. I mean, part of me wants to watch the Twilight franchise because I've never seen that. That's kind of ridiculous. So that's what you're getting. Uh, I guess what that's what this segment was. Just a, a momentary ridiculous trip into, you know, uh, an 80s property that I grew up with and, and found that I just really adored as I was watching them. So, so if you have some hours to kill, go check out Nightmare on Elm Street. I guess when you reach a certain age, you can't go through a week or a month without someone you know, without someone you look up to, uh, maybe a family member, a friend, or uh, someone you grew up with, without someone passing away. And yesterday, August 8th, was the pass passing of Olivia Newton-John who died from cancer at her home in California at the age of 73. Olivia Newton-John was probably my first crush. Uh, you know, when you saw her there in the Grease movie as Sandy. Grease was released in the summer of 78, so I was five at the time. I don't know if... I don't know if I saw that movie in the theater, if my family took took me to see it in the movie theater, or if I eventually watched it on TV, so maybe I was a little bit older. But I'm fairly certain that she was my first crush ever, and probably is the reason, probably is the reason why I dated uh, a lot of blonde-haired um, people. Um, yeah, she, this was sad. This so sad. Uh, I did not know she had cancer. It's not like I followed her career later in life, but certainly Greece, 
Xanadu, Two of a Kind, all of her music videos, some of her concert performances, maybe some of her late night appearances. I mean, you know, uh, I, as a kid and in the late 70s and early 80s, certainly knew who Olivia Newton-John was. And just as I watched some videos now, interviews in her later life with John Travolta, interviews at the time of Greece, at the time of Two of a Kind, in uh, interviews from the 80s and, and, and such. Um, just one of those people that, wow, you know, just throws me back to my childhood and has this presence of you just, she, she has to be nice, you know, you want her to be nice, you want her to be good. Very much that whole, that whole Sandy complex, I guess. So I was really sad. In fact, uh, my sister uh, said that when she found out that Olivia Newton-John had passed away, she told someone else, oh my, Peter must be on the floor in the fetal position crying um, because this was, this was my girl. This was my girl. Um, I don't have a lot to say. You can, you can read things. You can um, f follow some interviews. Um, she's just, you know, she's of an era, right? I mean, if you're my age, around my age, and you're a fan of Greece and some other things, um, she's going to be of an era, just like many of these people are. Um, that I grew up with. So very sad to hear about her passing. So I'll just play a couple clips of things here uh, just to, to, you know, in memoriam and just to remember Olivia Newton-John. I'm sure every 14, 15-year-old girl goes through uh, sort of things that Sandy in the movie went through. I was never mixed up with quite such heavy girls as I was in this film, but I was pretty naive, yeah. Did you know John Travolta before the beginning of the film? No, I didn't. In fact, I met him for the first time when he came out to the house to discuss the part. Mm. When you were in high school, uh, what kind of music did you listen to? Um, I think I was influenced by uh, folk music mostly when I was younger. It was Joan Baez and, uh, and um, I think, well, Joan Baez and Ray Charles, Nina Simone, were the sort of influences well, I, I had. Won't, uh, really, and, and the most personal question, uh, because this is written, no one, uh, not that person. <laughs> not that person. <laughs> uh, to see yourself on the big screen tonight for the first time with a very exciting uh, premiere that really goes back to the old Hollywood premieres. How did you feel about it? Well, I'd sort of adjusted to seeing myself from going to dailies and things and going to see the filming over a long period of time. Mm. But to sit there in an audience of people that I didn't know and, and wait for their reaction was very strange. Um, it was very frightening, to tell you the truth. Xanadu was the uh, biggest financial loss for a movie that uh, Universal had suffered, you know, as of as of 1980 when it was uh, when it opened. See, that's the yin and yang, the biggest and the worst. <laughs> <laughs> Did you realize at the time when you were making it and this script rewriting was going on that things were beginning to fall apart? Well, I kind of had a clue when we arrived one morning and the director, we had had lines the night before. He came in with new lines, then came in and said that nobody liked them and sent us home. I mean, it was, it was very bad, 
the writing was not good, the, the story had no following, and the director was writing the script as we went along. And then I asked him one day, this is the, the cruncher, I kind of got a clue from this one, I asked him um, what kind of music he liked, and he said, oh, I don't like music. I thought, well, this, this is a musical. I, I got a little worried after that one. But, um, Oh, excuse me, but I'm looking for Major Trevor. Have you seen him? No, I haven't, but I can see by your costume that you must be Wonder Woman. Oh, yes, I am. I, uh, I don't mean to be rude, but I can't tell from your costume who you are. Listen, my name is Olivia, and I'm a singer. I'm doing a television special, and I was wondering if you'd like to come on my show and be one of my guests and sing and dance with me. Really? Oh, that would be wonderful. You know, there's a great new song by the Andrews Sisters. Oh, I was thinking more in the lines of Elton John. Elt and who? What about a cold pork? Excuse me for a moment. It's so rude to point. Anyway, don't be frightened. I was thinking we could do a dance up a big staircase, just like in the movies. I've got one of those on my show. You do? Yeah. Oh, don't move a muscle. Time to do your show, Olivia. But as you can see, I have a lot of responsibilities. Well, maybe you could fit it in somehow. Olivia, do you want me to give up my fight against crime and corruption to sing and dance on your show? Of course not. Oh. Well, it was only a suggestion. <laughs> Wednesday Night Fever. Taking a look at a few reviews and also comic book recommendations for the week of August 10th in this segment. And the three books I'm going to talk about are the first issues of New Champion of Shazam from DC, Ant-Man from Marvel, and Survival Street from Dark Horse. So let's start with New Champion of Shazam number one. Uh, number one of a mini-series. This is from the week of August 3rd. This is by Josie Campbell, Evan Doc Shaner, Becca Carey. On the cover, she, she's she got the power, which, <laughs> you know, He-Man reference, CNC Music Factory reference, or could also be a reference to that um, 90s series that I did not read a lot of, surprisingly. I read the original graphic novel, I read the Starman crossover issues, and then there was some storyline featuring the Monster Society, and I do believe I read that as well. But the large part of that series has gone unread, so there's a blemish in my uh, geek cred, I guess you could say. <laughs> so, okay, this issue. Um, 
We have Mary starting her first year at college. She wants to start a new phase of her life away from people knowing things about her. For instance, that she was given up for adoption, she was a runaway, a self-admitted know-it-all, she's part of a larger superhero family, you know, she wants to just focus on something new. And then comes along this magical talking bunny that was sent by Billy Batson because he needs her to be the new champion of Shazam for some emerging threat that only she can handle. Uh, you get some light references uh, light references back to whatever the current Shazam continuity is, with Billy out of action, the power is gone from the Shazam family. There are mentions of Philadelphia, you see the foster parents, you see uh, a talkie tawny doll, uh, etc., etc. And with all of that, and with the artwork by Evan Dockshainer, this total package, for me, winds up being a disappointment. And the start of what I felt was a very forgettable story. Now, maybe they'll make me eat my words by the end of the issue, by the end of the series. But for me, this first issue, it's just not interesting enough to carry through to issue two. Fully understanding that it's getting a lot of high marks, I think, I think it's more because of the art, which is warranted to a, to a certain degree. Um, but that goodwill for the artwork is feeding into the story as well. And when I read these reviews, I'm going, no... I don't think they're being honest about these reviews, but anyway, for me, the story just feels flat. It's very flat. The execution of it, not engaging, you know, even with Mary's worries and wanting to start new, meeting new friends at college. I mean, it's a perfect time to read this book, you know, at the end of fall. The themes are all there, and I can see people can appreciate that. It just comes across as really generic there's one villain in the in the issue he's not interesting even for humor purposes not interesting not well designed the cliffhanger had no weight for me give this to a person who has never read a comic before sure fine or, or someone who's not familiar with comics i can't say this is a great introduction to the shazam family um it's a good introduction to her, but not to necessarily the larger family, you know. But I just feel like if you are going to give this to somebody who's not familiar with comics, you want to give them something that's more imaginative, something more compelling. I don't mean it's got to be like Watchmen, but this one just comes across as, you know, after school special light kind of fare. Um, so the artwork, yeah, the artwork is perfectly fine. I don't think the artwork is given the chance in this first issue to really be creative because of the storytelling demands. Um, it's very fairly standard in panel design, in what you see from moment to moment. Again, I think I put that more to the story than the artwork because there's nothing really in the story that brings out the magic. And even those moments where there could be magic, literal magic and, and art magic, it doesn't resonate, you know? I have I have several of those DC Ink and DC Zoom books, which were 
you know, totally geared for the young audience, digest-sized, you know, all that stuff. And I feel like they have more of what I thought this was going to be. And I totally think this is a character that is worthy of a comic. I think it's a book that deserves a place on the shelf because she hasn't had her own series since, you know, the golden age. And Doc Shaner is a good choice for the artist. I'm not familiar with the writer. But you're just not using both the characters, both the concept, both the artists. You're just not using them using them strongly enough. And this was a book that was delayed. Um, I think, as I read, possibly to get it closer to the Shazam or Black Adam movies. So could it have been reworked, you know? Could the editor have said, yeah, let's let's flare this up a little bit, uh, maybe release it as one collection, as, an, as an, uh, an original graphic novel? Maybe not like those digest-sized books, but like an actual, like, like the Power of Shazam graphic novel. Like, just release this all in one. Because I think that way you might forgive some of the slower, earlier chapters if it's going to end on a bang, which, you know, I don't know. It could even be the same basic plot. It just needs another rework of sorts. And most of my issues come down to dialogue. And, and I've said this before about some other books. If you're writing dialogue and you're hearing it in your own head, you may think it translates to the page, but it doesn't. It falls flat. And I feel like dialogue for comics, very much like plays and Shakespeare and, and, and musicals, it just needs to be elevated or, or even TV shows. You know, there's a reason why Aaron Sorkin's dialogue rings and makes you want to listen. This dialogue did not make me want to listen, didn't make me want to read. You can even have a voice, right? Whether it's something like Chris Claremont or Marv Wolfman's Purple Prose or, you know, uh, Bendis or Tom King, you know, the, the people that when you read a lot of this stuff, especially like Tom King, I, I, the reason I enjoy that dialogue is because it makes you pause. It makes you it makes you feel a pace, a rhythm, um, because dialogue, you need you need rhythm and you need inflection and it's flat on the page. You can't let the letterer uh, be the one to do that just because they bold certain words. You have to make this interesting, this dialogue interesting. You have to make certain characters speak a certain way. Everybody just sounds like they, they're talking the same because you're not hearing tone. You're not hearing type of voice. You're not hearing volume. It's just generic dialogue. It's what I said about the Titans TV show. Um, it's what I say about some other, you know, uh, generic TV shows that it's just people saying cliches and I don't get a sense of personality. So the narration is fine. I think that works. But what's being said in the narration is very different than what is being said, you know, between characters. And that's the part that I just, I, I just didn't like. So wait for the collection on this. Uh, I imagine the artwork, even if it's, you know, if it's a nice collection, will will stick out, but I think I've talked enough about it. Yeah. This is a, this is a pass for me. I just, I really just was not enjoying it. Um, I will say this though, the cover title logo, the Z in Shazam, makes me think of it as being like a backward 
backwards Superman S. Has that notion been brought up before? Like if if Captain Marvel were to have the Z on his chest, you know, sort of like Zod, right? Um, would people think, oh, that's just, you know, Superman backwards. But there was something about the logo that made me think that. So anyway, let's jump to July 27th with the release of Ant-Man number 104 from Marvel. In honor of the character's 60-year celebration, each issue will explore a hero who has donned the mantle of Ant-Man. This is by Al Ewing, uh, new-to-me artist Tom Riley, Jordi Belair on colors, Corey Pettit on letters. So apparently Tom Riley was the artist on the, the Thing series from 2021 and his own work, something called Black Knight. Um, yeah, this one... Really great. Another Al Ewing comic to enjoy. A journey through Marvel history, a hero's legacy, uh, a lot of charm of those comics of a bygone era from the original Marvel Age era of the 60s. Tom Riley perfectly capturing the various eras. You got the Marvel Age of the 60s, like I said, but also trying to figure out what the Marvel of the future could look like because there's a man from the 26th century of Marvel. It does take place during all of the Tales to Astonish uh, stories with Aunt Hank Pym and then later Ant-Man and uh, you know he's out on a date with Janet and they're watching they're watching the Namor produced Fantastic Four movie that Namor did in, what was it, like Fantastic Four number nine or something? I, I didn't write it down. Where he suckers the Fantastic Four in to make a movie so he could fight them. So they're watching this movie. And then along the way, uh, something happens that he has to, be, Hank Pym has to become Ant-Man. And we get roped into uh, the larger story where he meets this man from the future. And then eventually we'll find out why. Along the way... Look for surprising little cameos of future Ant-Men, which is fun. And again, it's told in that 60s Marvel Age style, both in writing and in artwork. So it's a really good use of the comic book page. I <laughs> I enjoyed the villains. So a bunch of old Ant-Man villains team up, sort of like a Superman revenge squad. And they're called the Antagonists, which is great. And these are all just like low-level crooks that he has fought in various issues of Tales to Astonish, and they let you know which ones at the end of the book. Um, yeah, just so good. You know, Al Ewing, this is very different from Defenders. It's it's a celebrate. If it's a celebration of 60 years of Ant-Man, this is a worthy celebration because in my eye, and I've said this before, Marvel doesn't do anniversaries well, but this one is this one is really good, and it makes me interested in reading an Ant-Man comic, right? Like, who who knew? I also learned some things along the way about Ant-Man. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's really good comic book making, you know? And even the cliffhanger. Normally, when you get cliffhangers that are reveals of a character that we've already seen in the book or in promotions... Um, they kind of fall flat to me. It's a, you know, it's a typical comic book thing, but I'm sort of like, okay, whatever, you know, unless it really hits home or whatever. But I like the design of this future character so much that I can't be too hard on it because 
I was smiling through the whole book and, uh, you know, the ending was warranted. So yeah, this is definitely a book that I want you to read. So go check Ant-Man out. And then we go to Dark Horse's Survival Street number one. I believe it's also a miniseries as well by James Asmus and Jim Fistante. Those are the writers. Uh, Abile Kusinov is the artist. Ellie Wright is on colors. Taylor Esposito letters. Justin Couch is designer. Is the designer. Um, this is an unrepentant action satire, tearing through a dystopia packed with economic and humanistic cautionary tales. Uh, keep that in your mind. After an unbridled wave of corporations take over America, the country is left completely deregulated and effectively carved up into feudal states where billionaires and businesses make their own laws. Among the wreckage, mass privatization shuts down public broadcasting, forcing all the beloved edutainers out on the down and dirty streets. One group of them stick together, determined to keep helping kids across the country, and do it by becoming an A-team-esque band of mercenaries, fighting for and educating kids in the crumbling corporate war zone of New Best America. And that team is made up of puppets from Salutation Street. That's right. Think of Sesame Street, Salutation Street. This is totally fun. It's totally silly. The artwork is is right where it needs to be for this kind of story. And the hook of the puppets being being the rebels as the main focus is absurd. It's totally absurd. And they come across some scenes that you're like, okay, that's just bizarre and, uh, you know, just crazy. Some of the jokes, I feel, are a little bit too on the nose. And then when you start to think of the parallels of who the puppets are, again, a little bit too on the nose. I feel like this would have been great a bunch of years ago, shortly after 2016, anywhere during, you know, the previous administration, like, then it really would have sang, because it works, and there are a few small surprises, a few things that jump out that I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I can roll with that, that was cool, um, I didn't, maybe I didn't see something coming, or you do see it coming, but you're still sort of like, okay, I like the way they rolled it out, great, totally fine, but that whole thing in the blurb where they're talking about economic and humanistic cautionary tales. I mean, I think we're living so much in it that to parody it um, totally makes sense, but the weight of it is a little gone because some of it is just too close to home. I mean, some of this stuff that's being talked about in this issue, I'm like, yeah, it's just way too close to home. It's good, though. It's fun. It's not as, it's not as hard-hitting as I wanted it to be. Um, because again, I feel like it just missed, missed its window. It's still relevant, but I, it, it just missed, I think, when it really would have hit. So I don't know if there was any delays because of the pandemic or whatever. But um, I'm going to keep reading. I'm going to keep reading. And uh, if it sounds like something that could be interesting to you, you should too. All right, let's get to the recommendations for the week of August 10th, starting from Image Comics. The first issue of Love Everlasting by Tom King, artist Elsa Chartier, uh, as she says uh, in many of the interviews that I've seen. I know there's probably an Americanized version of that. We have Hollingsworth and Cowles rounding out the creative team. This is romance comics 
with a twist that was released through Tom King's Substack and is now out in print. From Terry Moore, we have the continuation of the Strangers in Paradise universe with the first issue of Parker Girls. From Dark Horse, Black Sod, They All Fall Down, hardcover, part one, by Juan Diaz Canales, Juanjo Guarnido, uh, set in 1950s with mobs, unions, a mid-century master builder who wants to pave over New York City's green spaces, and a whole bunch of anthropomorphic characters leading the way. Beautifully drawn uh, series of books, so go check that out. Also from Dark Horse, Shifting Earth trade paperback, $19.99 by Cecil Castellucci, Flavia Biondi, Fabiana Mascolo. Uh, Think environmental story meets parallel Earths. From Behemoth Comics, we have No Holds Barred trade paperback, the first folio, and that's Barred as B-A-R-D. Eric Gladstone, Gabrielle Carey, Bravo, Bideker. Uh, this is Queen Elizabeth I is kidnapped, so it's up to the bard and Page to the rescue. And that would be William Shakespeare and William Page. And it's written in iambic pentameter. What? Yeah, that I have to check that out. And from Marvel, speaking of anniversaries, Ghost Rider Vengeance Forever One-Shot, celebrating the 50th anniversary of Ghost Rider I'm always willing to check out anniversary issues, but sometimes they leave me disappointed from Marvel. So there you go. Those are your recommendations for this week. In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived, worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. Available weekly at johnreadscomics.com The Daily Reads Thursday. Normally, this segment for The Daily Reads is a focus on X-Men from giant size onward. And I'm currently in the start of the John Byrne era. But this particular Daily Reads is going to focus on another reading project that I have, which is trying to get to the Marvel comic of Thunderbolts. Now, I've read Thunderbolts before, but I wanted to reread it. But in my warped way of reading comics, I said, oh, you know, if I read Thunderbolts, maybe I should go back and read the Onslaught event Uh, to see how it all came about, which I did. And then, of course, I go, hmm, you know, if I read Onslaught, then I really should read Heroes Reborn, because I have a bunch of those issues in my collection, and I just don't remember them, and I know I didn't finish them, and then I could read Thunderbolts. So, you know, that's how my mind is when I try to read these large projects. So anyway, that's what I've been doing. I did read all of the Onslaught uh, onslaught stuff. I'm not going to talk about that. But what I do want to talk about, oddly enough, another segment where I'm going to talk about something that I wasn't originally planning on. I want to talk about the first issues of Heroes Reborn. So Fantastic Four number one, Avengers number one, Captain America number one, Iron Man number one. And I'm not going to do this consistently But as I read those first four issues, 
there were just a number of things that jumped out to me that I was like, okay, this is really interesting. And uh, I was able to find some things and some connections to talk about. And I was like, okay, I got to make this a segment. I, I just have to make this a segment. Because, you know, when you're reading those at the time, which I did, um, you're in that 90s energy. Everybody was waiting for, uh, you know, Liefeld and Jim Lee to return to Marvel to see what they were going to do with the flagship title characters, right? And then you start to see some of the artwork come in for the promos, and you're like, oh boy, what's this going to be? And then these issues hit, and you're like, I think it's safe to assume that really early on, we all kind of went, hmm, is this what we're getting? Is this really going to be Marvel's <laughs> revamp of these titles? And how much longer are they going to last, right? Now, reading it to over 25 years later, and now all this other stuff has happened, not only just constant reboots, but the whole Marvel Cinematic Universe, suddenly these comics um, find themselves in a whole new light. And that's really what I want to talk about here. So you have the image founders, some of the image founders returning. Jim Lee, right, was going to take uh, Fantastic Four and Iron Man. Uh, Rob Liefeld was going to take Captain America and the Avengers. Um, along the way, Wills Portacio was brought in to draw Iron Man, which I knew. I f had forgotten that Jim Valentino was a co-writer for uh, the Avengers. So you have four of the image founders actually working. And I don't know if Mark Silvestri makes an appearance. I don't remember. I'll find out. Um, I certainly don't think Todd McFarlane did. And I don't think Eric Larson did. But again, we'll find out. Perhaps my biggest takeaway is how much uh, of the energy of these first, first four first issues feels like Marvel was trying to create a, a connected universe. You know, I know that sounds odd to say because the Marvel Universe is a connected universe, but in a much more compact way, right? Not only with these four issues, between the four issues themselves, but in the issues, just pulling all kinds of characters. And it reminded me, it reminded me of two things. First of all, it reminds me of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There are dialogue bits and there are relationships and there are things in these first four first issues that I'm like, okay, I don't know if that's a holdover into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but you can certainly connect a line. And Something as simple as like um, characters being introduced into titles, which again, it's not a new thing. You know, Black Widow was introduced in Iron Man way back and same thing as the movie. Um, you know, certain characters, uh, the way they mesh the Iron Man and the Hulk characters together in this Hero, Heroes Reborn stuff. I mean, it's, it's not new. None of this is new. It's just odd the way it feels like a stepping stone when these issues and this uh, imprint, it was largely ignored, right? Obviously, the other thing it feels like, or maybe not so obviously, is how much this template, <laughs> what they're doing with these characters and, and trying to redo the origins and blend character relationships and, and short do, do a lot of shorthand of 
30 years of Marvel history makes me feel like, okay, this template was what Bob Harris brought over as EIC of Marvel at the time to what DC was doing with the New 52. I mean, this is New 52 before New 52. It's the New 4, you know? It really is just, as I read it, maybe because Jim Lee is there, maybe because Rob Liefeld is there, certainly because Bob Harris is there. I'm like, oh my God, this is what I feel like when I read some of those early, um, those first issues for the New 52, which is another reading project I'm trying to get through. I think I talked about that many, many episodes ago. So anyway, yeah, those two big thoughts are right out there. Let's go to some individual thoughts per issue. Fantastic Four by Jim Lee, Brandon Cho and company. The first page is a total recreation of page 10 of the original Lee and Kirby story, which I just didn't remember. Or when I read that back in 1996, maybe I just never read the first issue of Fantastic Four, so I didn't know. They are testing for the new ship Excelsior with a quantum drive because there is some kind of strange anomaly out in space that is some kind of like emerging wormhole and there's some kind of communication going on. Uh, So you have Reed and Ben, they're part of this program. Sue is running the Storm Foundation. Johnny is running casinos in Las Vegas. Um, You get Wyatt Wingfoot, who is an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., but then he turns out to be working for Dr. Doom, of course. There are so many sequences that I could see becoming uh, a movie. So it's like, this is like storyboarding for movies, like the whole Johnny and Ben playing chicken in the desert and the way these characters are introduced and their costuming. And of course, Sue is already able to fight and there's just high drama and secrets and all that other stuff. I'm like, this is like, they just want to hand this to a movie studio and say, okay, do this, you know, very much in the way of like the ultimate line was um how they 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 could they could use that as kind of like a basis for movies as well um the whole thing with the wormhole uh initially i thought you know this could be a cool way like is this franklin trying to reach them for into the heroes reborn universe but i think it has to do with silver surfer um you know typical origin stuff they go through that just like the first uh marvel age version um, we meet the mole man and there's some homages back to the original silver age issues. It's all very nineties. It's all very nineties and all very angsty, but I have to admit of the four, I really did enjoy this one. Then Captain America by Je- uh, Rob Liefeld, Jeff Loeb. Um, out of all four of them, this one is the one that feels the most different when you're trying to compare it to the original Kirby comics. Uh, the motivations are different. The origins are different. It's it's like this one is really different. The origin has been changed from Cap being in suspended animation to just having amnesia. He has a family in Philadelphia, although they place him at 85 Chestnut Street, and they call that a su- suburb. And I'm like, mm, if you're talking about Chestnut Street in Philadelphia, that is not a suburb. We meet the character of Ricky Barnes. She's a dancer trying to apply to different colleges. I did not know that part of her origin. Um, we get, you know, the Master Man. We get the, this thing called the World Party. A lot of replacement theory dialogue going on. 
And, you know, there's an assist from Chuck Dixon. And I was like, mm, yeah, of course. Um, uh, let's see. The way they describe Masterman, they say he's a man with the plan. I, I like that, right? That's a line from the Captain America song in his first uh, MCU movie. We meet a character named Abraham Wilson. He has the shield. We have to find out what this all means. Eventually, Steve Rogers wakes up. And he says he's going to avenge the death of his friend. There's that word. And then it ends with S.H.I.E.L.D., Sharon Carter, Dum Dum Dugan, Nick Fury. And they say the Patriot is awake. Uh, yeah, this one was... <laughs> I'm going to keep reading him, but this one was not good. Um, Iron Man. Iron Man, this is the other one that I uh, kind of enjoyed. It, it has a very familiar feel, similar feel to Fantastic Four with a big cast of characters. Um, but this story wasn't as, it was decent. It just, and the artwork is actually really good. The Wills Portacio artwork. I am not mad at the way he designs Iron Man. I, I, there's something about it I kind of like. Um, but something about this story felt not as, um, fully realized as, as the Fantastic Four one. So it's Jim Lee, Scott Lobdell, Wills Portacio, a huge cast of characters, Tony Stark, Pepper, Happy, Sitwell, uh, Liz Ross, Bruce Banner, Leonard Sampson, Jennifer Walters. I mean, they are all in here. And then there's a character named Rebel, which I totally forgot about. And he's the one that in the very beginning is testing out the prototype suit. And he apparently dies in an, in an explosion, but I have to assume we're going to see him again. There's this concept of the Atomic Knights, which I really like. Bruce Banner, Reed, Victor, this character of Rebel, and Tony Stark were all together when they were in their youth and they thought they were going to change the world. We get Hydra. We get Madam Hydra. She's trying to take over one of the Stark complexes that is housing a gamma bomb, which is what Bruce created. And he thinks Hydra is going to destroy the bomb, so he actually sides with Hydra, but then it turns out, nope, they're going to use it. So he ditches it into a 13-mile uh, downward elevator, and he goes with it, and that's how he becomes the Hulk. And Wilson's version of the Hulk is very um, big and glandular and just uh, just odd. It's an odd uh version of the Hulk. Um, he attacks a helicopter and that's how Tony gets injured and Tony goes and puts on uh, one of the suits and he becomes Iron Man or as Hulk says go away Iron Man and that's how he gets named. So yeah um, I like this one the artwork is decent as I mentioned but um, the story not not so much and then we get Avengers that's the last one that shipped Rob Liefeld, Jim Valentino, Chap Yap. Um, <laughs> this one had some promise in the beginning, surprisingly, and then just become... This one is the most Youngblood version of all of them. This is like... This one could have been an image book, you know, even though it has Marvel characters. That's the way I felt after I read it. Uh, it's a bit like Fantastic Four and Iron Man. It's a huge mix of characters. The Avengers... Thor and Loki, S.H.I.E.L.D., and that's the part I liked. Like, it opens with Loki, and he's confused. He doesn't know where he is. There is no Asgard. 
it feels like he was pulled from the 616 universe just because Thor went into Onslaught. So if you if Thor goes into Onslaught, then like all of his lineage goes in as well. I dug that, right? I, I thought that was interesting. And even later when we meet Thor, he has dialogue where he's like, I remember an onslaught, a great reckoning, a sacrifice. So there are bits and pieces of the previous Marvel Universe that are already in play. And that could all just be their way of having an out later if for some reason this line doesn't succeed, which it didn't. Um, the character designs are wildly inconsistent. Loki starts off with not a terrible design in the beginning, but then it becomes something totally other by the time Rob Liefeld takes over the art duties in the book. The dialogue is not great. It doesn't really flow. Um, and then we have different things like instead of Dr. Blake becoming Thor, he finds the body of Thor encased in amber, and they find Mjolnir, and they actually call it an artifact, and that's a word that they use in the MC universe. So there, you know, there's a lot of different ways that they're going to come about these characters. There's an Avengers island. They are all wrapped up with fury and shield, just like the movies. Um, we have Agatha Harkness and Wanda, the Scarlet Witch. We got Swordsman. We got Hawkeye, Hellcat, and the Vision, and Captain America. Some of that, like when you see the first splash page, double splash page of the Avengers team, makes me think, yeah. That's the image lineup, right? You have a main leader. You usually have some kind of mag magician on the team. You usually have some kind of brute force on the team, some robot, uh, some animal creature. Uh, you know, you have somebody that has weaponry. You know, it's like, yeah, this is everything Image was doing because they were emulating giant size X Men, really. Uh, you know, with Colossus being of uh, the brute force character and then you had storm some kind of some kind of elemental woman character or or otherworldly woman character and then you had you know like a nightcrawler character you had a wolverine character anything that had you know razors and and fangs and all that stuff nightcrawler is like the animalistic one you know this is all what image was playing with you know and all of their teams have this formula um I don't necessarily hate Thor's design. It's not traditional. It's a little weird, but it's okay. Uh, we have a lot of Captain America pushing back against their even being gods that are not like his god. Again, a nod to the Marvel Universe. And at the end, you know, well, there's this whole big battle between Thor and the Avengers because Loki got in the middle and then eventually uh, Thor figures it out. And Loki is saved by the Enchantress in that just insane panel where she has a, a legs that are like a million miles long. And Scarlet Witch is apparently her daughter. So I don't remember where all of that plays out. So yeah, just some fascinating insight into four issues into a, a, an imprint that, um, you know, is one of those blemishes uh, in the Marvel Universe, you know, I, I guess in many ways people feel about the New 52 the way they felt about Heroes Reborn, but Heroes Reborn only lasted, you know, 13 issues for those titles, whereas New, New 52 lasted for a number of years. So there you go. That's my daily reads for this segment. I won't always go back to 
to, you know, I'm not going to do this for like all the issue number twos, but maybe when I get to like issue six, I'll give a roundup of everything uh, to that point. And I think that's what I'm going to start doing with the daily reads as well. Instead of just just focusing on the X-Men, if there is some other project that I'm reading that I want to talk about, I will throw it in here. Wrap it up. I'll take it. Wrap it up. I'll take it. For this final segment of the week, I guess you could consider this a Friday wrap-up of this week's uh, digest. I just wanted to inform everybody that, um, you know, for anybody interested, <laughs> that I will not be returning to teaching this uh, with the fall, new fall semester. After 11 years of uh, being the sole tap instructor for the musical theater program that I worked for, uh, dating back to fall semester of 2011, I am not returning. And this is my decision. Um, I had started working with this uh, musical theater program in fall of 2011. It's one of the reasons why I had left CGS, because I knew I was going to be working with the school and uh, my time was going to be, uh, you know, just sort of limited. You know, I, I was had moved back to Philadelphia in 2007. I was, I got this new job. I was getting other jobs. Um, so it was great, you know, and I started working at the school 10 months prior to starting the Daily Rios, the first year of the Daily Rios. There's a lot of connectivity there. And I talked about some of the educational things on various episodes here and there. But yeah, after 11 years, I've decided not to go back. And it pretty much just comes down to when there are certain decisions that are made, you can't support them, you know, especially when they're made without your expertise. Um, in, in those 11 years, there are not many faculty members that are still around from that time 11 years ago, which is, you know, totally fine. It's as it should be. Some retired, some left, whatever. Um, but in those 11 years, in those 11 years, I've had six different deans of the school and I've had five different program heads, sort of like my immediate boss, if you will. That speaks to something about the school, you know, that you have that much turnaround. And the last turnaround was a complete surprise, I think, to many people and is part of the reason why decisions were made and they were made without the expertise of me or faculty in general. And they were made with other faculty that really has no idea about what the program is, you know. And um, the program basically is getting neutered and I just could no longer be part of it. And they certainly weren't trying to help um, make it palatable to for me to continue working especially when you're cutting hours and cutting classes and cl cutting class time that's just I I can't do it you know there's I'm still traveling between my home and Philadelphia I would be losing money basically so when there's no one at the helm who really understands or who, or who has to learn the program on the fly and when they don't go to the people who are actually there like again 
six deans, five program heads. But you know who's been there for 11 years? Me. You know, like my classes, which grew that entire time from two sec sections to five sections of, of levels of difficulty with TAP, um, the person that has been there, even with all of these deans and programs coming in and wanting to change things and having new mission statements, you know what? It never gets fully off the ground. The thing that keeps working is the teachers and the students and our relationships and how we make this program work. We, you know, that's really where the program works. And, you know, I just, I couldn't do it anymore. I, I had to walk away. So that's what I did. And that means um, now I am finding new work. Um, <laughs> if anybody wants to learn tap over Zoom, I am I have a lot of time on my hands. <laughs> um, and actually, I do. I've I've taught classes here and there. You know, just small things here and there. But they're they're they work, and you can do it from the comfort of your home. So, if you have any anybody's who's interested, if you're a couple. If you have, I don't teach young kids, younger kids, like lower than 11 or 12. I like to teach kids who, who actually have an understanding, maybe like a basic rudimentary understanding of the skill. And I'm being serious. You know, if you have someone who in your family or friends who is looking to go into performing arts and they want help for college auditions, or they just want to brush up their skills, um, I am available and I'm really available. So I am going to go back to selling comics and teaching on zoom and I don't know, finding work that I can do from home maybe or whatever. Um, but it's a whole new thing. And you know, if you've been listening to me all these many years, you know that I am someone that, um, uh, this is, this is the life of a performer. You know, you, you go through long spells of things and then you find something else, you know? If you're a professional actor, you do a gig and then you audition for another gig. And when that ends, you audition for another gig. It's just constantly looking for work. Your job as an actor is to find work. So that is what I will be doing in one way or another. I have some other thoughts uh, on things that I want to talk to you all about. Um, but I'm going to save that for another day because I'm still trying to, you know, make it work in my brain um, with some th things that you've suggested, suggested a few of you, and I'm putting that into consideration, but, um, yeah, Hey, maybe somebody out there actually works for a college that has a musical theater program and they want to develop a tap program, um, uh, that is quite rare. I mean, what I developed with, with colleagues that are no longer there was a program that is rare for a performing arts college to have that many levels for tap. I mean, we have a, a school of dance in our university as well, and they don't even have tap. They used to, but they don't. They haven't had tap for a number of years. I was getting some of their students because they they came to the school wanting tap, and there was no tap in the dance department, so they came over to the musical theater department. Those are valuable skills to have for anybody who wants to become a performer, a theater performer. So anyway, yeah. So, you know, one of my uh, main descriptions for the Daily Rios was uh, professing, profess, being a professor. <laughs> and I guess I have to strike that from my uh, my tagline for, for now, at least, unless I find something else or if I create something of my own here. Uh, where I live. So yeah, very odd. Uh, 
very odd. School starts at the end of August. It's going to be weird not to go back, but I won't miss the commuting. But then again, um, there's no way I'm going to commute to Philadelphia for just a few classes. I mean, just that just doesn't make sense. So bon voyage to that part of my life. Boy, just, you know, ticking things off as we go. So, you know, relationships, theater, now work. Um, I'm expecting, I guess, to lose a leg, maybe. I shouldn't joke about that. <laughs> Oi, yeah. What a time. What a time to be alive. So, all right. Send me your <laughs> send me your emails. Cheer me up. Peter at thedailyrios.com. Go visit the website, thedailyrios.com. Go visit the Daily Rios Instagram. Follow me on Twitter, Peter J. Rios. Give me a review on your favorite podcast, uh, favorite podcast catcher. Let me know where I am not. I certainly know. I need to put this on many, many other places. This has been The Daily Rios, episode 574 for Sunday, August 14th, 2022. Talk to you soon.